me please to the little book of Nehemiah and the Old Testament, chapter 8. First, second Samuel, first, second Kings, first, second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, you'll find it there. Nehemiah chapter 8. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. And so Ezra the priest brought the book, sorry, brought the law before the assembly of men, a woman, and all who could hear and understand with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Excuse me, let me just get a little drink here. <clears throat> get a little frog in my throat. Sorry. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in the front of the water gate from morning until midday, before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose. And beside him at his right hand stood Mathahiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Helkiah, Masiah, and at his left hand, Pedaliah, Mishael, Machachai, Hashem, Hasabadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam. I got to deserve a round of applause for that, didn't you? <laughs> Even though I got a few wrong. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and he opened it, and all the people stood up, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Joshua, and Bani, and Sherebiah, and Jamin, and Abuk, and Shabbatiah, and Hoyah, and Masiah, and Keltiah, and Azariah, and Jezebad, and Hainan, and Pedaliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. And so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet. And send portions to those to whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to the Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions, to rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. And on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses and all of the people with the priests and Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. 
And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should announce and proclaim in all the cities in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountains and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, and myrtle branches, and palm branches, and branches of leafy trees, to make booths, as it is written. Then the people went out and brought them, and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house, or in their courtyards, on the courts of the house of God, and in the open square on the water gate, of the water gate, and in the open square at the gate of the Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths for since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until the day the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. And also day by day from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. That was rather a long reading. But I did that so that you would get the image in your mind. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, these three books are companion books, sequels, if you will. They concern themselves really with the events uh, regarding the temple and the captivity when they returned from the captivity, how they had to rebuild the temple and the broken down walls of Jerusalem. Ninety-four years prior to Nehemiah, Zerubbabel brought back the first exiles. And then 57 years after Zerubbabel, Ezra, the scribe that we read about here, he brought another remnant up from Jerusalem, and the temple was rebuilt, and there was a, a, a revival of sorts. And then 37 years later, Nehemiah himself, he comes now to rebuild the broken down walls of Jerusalem. And according to chapter 6, 15, it only took 52 days to complete the job, a job that should have been done years and years before this, but the people had neglected and they had got away from God and they had left the law of the Lord. The revival had quietened. The revivals, generally speaking, don't last very long. And the people reverted to type. And now Nehemiah comes back and he stirs them all up again. Ezra describes an old, old man now. He's probably about 90 years old. And something begins to happen here, as you can see. And so Nehemiah now calls for a great convocation, a great gathering of God's people. Sometimes that term is used today regarding a conference, a convocation, where God's people gather from all over uh, for a tremendous time of worship unto the Lord. Now the whole book here can be divided into basically to two sections. The first six chapters relates to rebuilding the walls, but the last seven chapters more or less relates to the reestablishing of the people uh, who would be living there. Now Nehemiah calls for this convocation, and this morning I want to uh, briefly look at what makes a good service. What makes a good worship service? I'm not just talking about the praise part, but the over, overall times whenever we come together to worship God, what makes it worthwhile? What validates it? What makes it authentic? What is so good about it whenever we meet together Sunday after Sunday to worship the living God so that we bring glory to God and that a byproduct of that is that we in turn are blessed 
when we come together to worship. And so first of all, I wanted just to go through some things. Some of these I'll just briefly mention, some I'll dwell a little bit more on. But first of all, the hearts of the people were spiritually prepared. This gathering was announced beforehand. They knew it was going to happen. They knew in good time. There was a certain day set aside. There was a certain time set aside. This would coincide with the great Feast of Tabernacles, which would last but eight days. And so it would begin on time. The date would be set. The time would be set. And the people would be prepared. They would be thinking about it. There would be anticipation about it. They would be prepared for it. And when it happened, they were ready to hear from God. And let me ask you a question. How do you prepare to meet with the Lord on the Lord's day? Do you prepare? Or do you just turn up? Because I guarantee you, if you spend some time in preparing, it will be better. You will receive far more. And you will be in a better position to give Him the glory and the honor that He deserves every single time we meet. But there's a problem. Because we meet a lot, don't we? Because we meet week after week after week after week, month in, month out, year in, year out. And it's so easy to become blasé about it, isn't it? It's so easy just to turn up without any preparation, without any forethought, without even a spiritual thought in your brain. Have you looked at the Word this week? Have you thought about the Scriptures? Have you talked to the Lord this week? Have you spent a few moments before you came here this morning just thinking and getting your thoughts a little bit focused? Now, during the week, I had the opportunity to play a round of golf. Now, I have to let you know that this is only the third game I've had in three years. And so... I had a round of golf with Mark and Nigel and another friend. And I have to tell you, I put absolutely zero preparation into it. Didn't go to the driving range. In fact, Mark climbed right into the back of my shed over everything to get those clubs that were buried in the back of the shed. When he brought them out, the cobwebs was on them. So that shows you the last time I played here. So no preparation can you guess what kind of a game I had? Absolute rubbish. Absolute rubbish. I, I felt embarrassed with some of the shots I played simply because there was no preparation. I had no practice. There's a spider there. I'll just put him on there. Thank you, Grace, on your keyboard waiting for you tonight. LAUGHTER that must be a long web that come all the way down from the ceiling. And so just to make that point, because I didn't prepare, I just showed up. And you know what happens when, you, when you're an amateur golfer and you haven't played for a long time? You show up and you take the hardest club in the bag to play the first ball, the driver. That's the hardest club in the bag. I mean, you would think you would have at least some sense to take... A three wood, which is a bit easier, but no, men are like this, or pride, we have to play. And I hadn't left at that club and I don't know how long, the cobwebs was on it. Of course, you can imagine what that first shot was like. That was rubbish too. 
In fact, I think I probably could count in one hand the many decent shots I had the whole round. I'll not tell you what my score was, but needless to say, Mark beat me and he just buried me. So he did. Because he's been practicing. He's been preparing, you see, for it. He was built up for it. He was ready for it. And I really wasn't. I just went out because it was him and because we had a wee bit of fun. But there you go. But sometimes we take that attitude into our spiritual lives and we just show up at the house of God. We don't even think about it. We just do it because it's week after week and you think, well, we, when we get there, we'll feel like it when we get there. And you know what happens? Praise is three quarters of the way over where the preacher's halfway through and then we spiritually wake up. And we get just a little tidbit here and there, but we just get scraps, but... I'm not even going to go down the road about coming early because you know how I feel about that. But anyway, so the hearts of the people were spiritually prepared. Secondly, the people were united as one. It said in verse 1, Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square. So important. They gathered together as one. There was a unity amongst them. Psalm 133 talks about when brethren dwell together in unity. It says, There the Lord commands a blessing. There is something happens in the spirit realm when God's people come together not in a desperate way, not in a scattered, fragmented way, but we come together as one. Now, we have all different personalities, we have all different thoughts, we have all way of looking at things, but it means to come together with one purpose, with one aim, to glorify God. And if we have come to do that today, then He will be glorified and we will be blessed, but we've come together in unity. In Genesis chapter 13, whenever Abraham and Lot, and Lot's Lot and Abraham's Lot, when they all got together in the land because of all the herds they had, they discovered that it was a bit cramped. And the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abraham, there's some arguments and fights going on among them. And Abraham stopped it and he says, look, the parasites, those that we live amongst, they see all this going on. It's not right. We're brethren, we shouldn't be doing this. And so he says, I tell you what, Lot, he says, you look out through all the land and you just pick a spot. Whatever you take, I'll go the opposite direction because this is not good. This is not right. We need to be together. And you know, they did that. It's tremendous whenever we work together. In Ephesians chapter 4, Apostle Paul here in verse 1 of Ephesians 4 says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Big statement. Endeavoring. It takes effort. It takes working at. It just doesn't come naturally. So we've got to work at it. 
endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. See how many times one was mentioned there. Don't you think Paul was emphasizing, making the point to be one together in Christ? Philippians chapter 1 just across the page a little bit. Verse 27, towards the end of that, Philippians 1. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Then go down to chapter 2. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but on lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not out not only for his own interest, but also the interests of others. And so you see the Apostle Paul here is constantly harping on this string about unity together, oneness in the body of Christ. On the great day of Pentecost, what happened? They were in one place and they were in what? In one what? Accord. And what happened? The Holy Spirit came. There's something about unity within the body of Christ that allows the Holy Spirit, that allows God to move and to bless as he wants to if we're working together. One of the great British traditions in the footballing world is the FA Cup. Now the FA Cup's special because it gives the the lower league players, the minnows of the footballing world, a chance to come up against the big boys of the Premier League, the multi-multi-millionaires with the great big fancy stadiums and dressing rooms. And so you get a lower league club who they all get the chance to play in this cup. And sometimes you get massive shock, great big upsets. Because some wee piddly club from somewhere comes up and plays the big boys and either holds them to a draw or actually beats them. And it's in all the news. Kettering Town or whatever has beat so-and-so. And it's all the news. And, and sometimes what happens, well, there's a couple of things that happen. Sometimes the big boys is a bit blasé. Ah, we're only playing the, you know, these lower league clubs. And you know, they're, they're, some of them are plumbers and some of them are carpenters. And we're you know, fully fit professors. And it'd be dead easy. And it's wee bonds. And they go in there with that kind of attitude and not really concentrating and focusing. And sometimes that's how they get beat. But sometimes it's because the wee clubs has no superstars. And they've not got no Ronaldos and Rooneys and all these big guys. They're just an ordinary bunch of sort of mediocre players. But because they're playing the big boys, they say, well, we better be on our game here. And they play together as a team. 
And even some of the lower league clubs that hasn't got the big superstars, but because they're playing together as a team and they're all pulling for each other, it's their biggest moment in their history of their club and they're going to make the best of it. And that's why sometimes you get a great big upset, a shock, because the Minnows has beat the Premier League guys, David has slain Goliath, and it's wonderful. And that's what makes the FA Cup so special because you never just know that some of the weak clubs may beat some of the big clubs because they have played as a team. How much better is it if we play as a team in the house of God? How much better if a family plays as a team? When a family's united, when a family's in harmony, when a church is united, when a church is in harmony, then there is blessing, isn't there? It makes such a difference when you have unity. And then thirdly, and I'm keeping a big end of time, because between Clifford and Claire and Ferns and Kathy, my preaching time's about almost gone. So blame them, all right? I'm going to take my full time. So if you have any complaints, blame these guys. All right, now, they came to hear the word of God. Verse 1. All the people gathered together as one man on the open square that was in front of the water gate and... They told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. They came to hear the word of God. What a wonderful reason to meet together. Now think about this. They only had the law of Moses. They came to hear the first five books of the Bible. The Torah. That's what they had. With all those laws and rules, and regulations, and stipulations, and ceremonies, and rites, and all of that stuff. And you know what? They came to hear it, and they were so excited about it. In fact, later on, they started to weep when they heard it. They really touched their hearts. And here we are, and we have got such a wonderful, wonderful book. We have got 66 books in one book. We have got the full canon of God's Word. We have got the complete totality of God's Word. We have got it all. We have got the 39 books of the Old Testament. We've got 27 in the New. And in that 39 in the Old, the first 17 are historical books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st 2nd Samuel, 1st 2nd Kings, 1st 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. All of that is historical books begins to tell the history of mankind from Adam. And then by the time you get to Genesis 11, it starts to change from then on. And then you get the history of a nation that came originally from Adam, but then through Abraham. You get a whole history of that. And out of that comes one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. We come into the New Testament. And then the last 17 books of the Old Testament are prophetical books. And those prophetical books, you've got major prophets and minor prophets. You've got major prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah. You've, and then you've got a, a bunch of minor prophets. I'm not going to go over all of them. But you've got those. And they're wonderful. Tremendous stuff. Even in the minor prophets. I'd love to do a series sometime in the minor prophets. There's such meat in those. And it relates so much to even our generation today. 
And if you compare, for instance, with the books of Kings and 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and you look at the prophets and see which prophet was speaking to which king, then you began to understand why he prophesied to them, what he said, why he was saying, what the conditions were like in the nation. And then it becomes exciting. Then you begin to realize, hey, there's a purpose to this. And then sandwiched between those 17 historical books and those 17 prophetical books, you get five poetical books or philosophical books. You get Job, you get Psalms, you get Proverbs, you get Ecclesiastics, Song of Solomon, and it's just jam-packed full of wonderful truths. It's exciting, it's wonderful. No wonder I love this book, it's great. And that's only the Old Testament. They didn't even have all of that. And then you come into the New Testament, and you've got the four wonderful Gospels, and then you've got the Christian church epistles, tremendous books that Paul had, had written to the churches to encourage them and to sometimes to chastise them and, and to teach them. And, you know, and then there was prison epistles where he wrote in prison. And then there's pastoral prison or epistles like Timothy, verse 2 Timothy and Titus. And then, of course, the wonderful prophetical book of Revelation. You know, and some of these books were very doctrinal, like Romans and even Hebrews. And some of these books was, uh, was very personal. Like a little letter to Philemon that Paul wrote to his business, Christian businessman acquaintance. Uh, you know, and, and the book of James is very practical. That's why sometimes it's called the Proverbs of the New Testament. And so we have got all of that in our lap every single day. And we come Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And we come to hear the Word of God. It's so precious. You know, there's parts of the world today and just even to own a Bible would be, would be the biggest ambition as a Christian that you would have. I mean, we had our brother from Canada here just a few months ago who takes Bibles to Russia and to those nations. And he says, sometimes people just start crying if you reach them a Bible. They've never had one in their whole lives. Meets pastors who doesn't even have a Bible. And they just weep and cry when they give them to them a, a holy Bible. Mine. Not at mine. Someone's only got a page of a Bible. I've got about 20 Bibles in my library. And there's other preachers that doesn't even have one. They came to hear the word of the Lord. And, and then they came with their families. You know, in verse 2 and 3, it says, so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding. Uh, and then down there and further on down. Uh, before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They came with their families. Something about bringing your kids to the house of God. Do you suppose that the 120 in the upper room in the day of Pentecost, do you suppose that they were all either single or childless? I don't think so. I'd imagine there's some children there too. And I imagine that the cloven tongues of fire, it says sat in each of them. And they were there, and they were there meeting together when the Holy Spirit came. Now, there's no guarantee that by bringing your children to the house of God, that they're going to end up loving God and serving God. Because God has only children, He doesn't have any grandchildren. In fact, there are some people who are born again today 
whose parents never ever set foot in the church in all of their lives. But somehow they met the Lord and they got saved. So leaving that aside for the moment, but the overwhelming evidence is that those who bring their children to the house of the Lord will stand a greater chance to see those children grow up knowing the Lord, loving the Lord, and serving the Lord. At least, at least you can stand before God and say, I give them every opportunity. My conscience is clear. I did everything in my power to make sure that they would know that when they came to the age of understanding, that they would know. Now they've got to make a decision on their own. You can't make it for them. But at least you give them the chance. I look around this church and I can see so many that were brought up in the house of the Lord from there were babies. And the vast majority of them are loving God and serving the Lord. And we brought them. Hail, rain, snow, or blow, we brought them. Whether they wanted to come, we brought them. Until they get a certain age. There comes a certain age and they got to make up their mind. But it's wonderful when you bring your children to the house of the Lord. What a heritage. What potential is there? What opportunity for them to hear the truth of God's word. And we're living in a generation where there's tons of kids don't go to church. We used to live in a generation where when the parents didn't go, they sent their children. But now, a lot of them doesn't even send their kids. And then there's a lot of Christians here so wishy-washy and in and out and up and down. Well, if church doesn't mean that much to the parents, guess what? It's not going to mean an awful lot to their kids, is it? If parents are making every kind of excuse in the book not to be at the house of God, guess what? When your children will come and say to you, well, I don't want to go. Well, you better go. Well, you don't go. What are you going to say? They were there. They were there. Women, men, and children. And I believe in the day of Pentecost, in that upper room, they were all there. Now, better go quickly. The service lasted a long time. Chapter 8, verse 3 from the morning until midday. That's a good five or six hours. Could you stick it? I don't think so. It comes a certain time where watch, we're looking at our watch, aren't we? I remember preaching away one night in here. Not tell you who it was. I looked down the congregation. Probably was a little bit long that night. And a brother did this. The biggest tent I ever got in my life. Made sure and I look at him. I just say, I'll just preach another 15 minutes for that. Thank you very much. I just get into the flesh just like that. I'll just preach another 15 minutes. He never looked at his watch again after that, I can tell you that. Now you're all wondering who that was. But being the diplomat as I am, I am not going to tell you. But the sinner is here in the house. <laughs> and you know who you are. But there you go. It lasted a long time. Hey, the Ukrainian service lasts a long time. Clever, don't they? 
You think Clifford sings a long time? You want to go to the Ukraine? We're, we're tired. I'm a, you know, it starts at 10 o'clock. I've seen me get up to preach at 1 o'clock. It starts at 10. Oh, they'll sing for at least an hour, won't they? And they'll dance. And they'll march up and down. They'll dance up and down the aisle. You're just exhausted watching them. Clifford and I, you know, we got caught a few times, didn't we? Get into that dance routine. So, so we had to sort of, after the second time, we had to kind of make sure we were away to the side so you didn't get grabbed and get pulled in. Because we were exhausted the time we got to preach. So it lasted a long time. Now, I'm not advocating long services for the sake of long services. There's no, it's not necessary to be long to be spiritual. So I'm not advocating just for the sake of it. But the truth of it is, and here's the rub, most of us could watch TV for hours on end or go to a movie and watch it for two hours or go to a hobby and spend hours and hours and hours and we come into church and if I preach more than 45 minutes, you sit and fidget, aren't you? Why is that? Is that because I'm a terrible, bad preacher? I'm not the greatest, but I'm not the worst. Sure I'm not. No. Enough said about that. And then it says there was reverence for the Scriptures. Verse 3, And ears of all the people were attentive to the Word. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And verse 4, it says they, made a, they built a special platform, a pulpit. Do you like this pulpit, by the way? Nice, isn't it? The man that made it sitting down at the back there. How long ago was that you made that, Ivan? 20 years ago? At least 20 years ago. That's a nice pulpit, isn't it? That was old school desks. They're as black as your boot. And there you are, look at them today. Nice. So they built a platform, they built a pulpit. And they got up on the pulpit, and all the people were attentive to the word. All the people. Part of this generation is that our attention span is very poor. The generation that grew up listening to radio had much greater attention span because you had to listen. TV blew that all out of the water because everything's got to be moving all the time. That's why you have two newscasters every time because after 10 seconds, look at the same one we're bored. want to see another face. That's the way we're brought up. And sometimes we come into church, not, I'm human, I'm like you, your mind can drift. Sometimes you drift out and in when I'm speaking. Sometimes you drift out and you never come back. <laughs> Somebody says, if the congregation goes to sleep, wake up the preacher. I know a preacher, he's dead now, same as a God preacher, we Divvy Duncan. And one night he was preaching, the mom was sleeping, spotted this guy sleeping. And he literally did this. He came right up the platform and over, and he hit him over the head with the Bible. He says, you're not going to listen to the word, you're going to feel the word. <laughs> I've never resorted to that tactic yet, but, but that got my attention. They were attentive to the word. They listened. They had reverence for the word. 
By the way, should I just say this now? I keep meaning to say this. Sometimes you look at some of these young men and women, and like Hannah's just doing right now, and you'll think maybe they're texting somebody. But what they're doing is looking at their Bible on their iPod or on their palm tree or whatever they use. So if you sit and think they're playing games, well, you're not playing games, Hannah, sure you're not. You're not texting the boyfriend or anything. No, okay. They're looking at their Bible, and sometimes you'll see them sitting doing this with it with a little marker. So they're not, they're actually looking at their Bible, all right? So I thought we'd clear that up, because the older generation look and say, would you look at them sitting with their phones out in the middle of church service? But they're looking at actually their Bible on their phone. That's the generation we live in today. It's wonderful, isn't it? Did you bring your Bible to church today? And if not, why not? Did you notice that I have resisted putting the scriptures on the screen? Did you notice that? You know, most modern preachers today, they put it on the screen. You know why I've resisted that? Because you stop bringing your Bible. Because a good friend of mine abroad has got a church, and he told me, David, when I start doing that, nobody brings their Bible, because why should they? It's up on the screen. But that makes us lazy. We don't need to turn to anything. I want you to bring your Bible, and when you put it in your lap, and when you turn to something and see it, get the attention, be attentive to the Word. And then very, very quickly, they were made to understand the Word. They were made to understand it. It says the Word was given distinctly. They were given the meaning of the Word. The Levites went about the crowd. Now remember these people had come out of captivity. Spent years and years and years in captivity. Had no access to the Word of God or anything. Was not taught to them. So now they're hungry for it. But they need to be taught. And so Ezra the scribe would begin to read it out. The Levites who would know the Word of God, they would go about the crowd and they would say, this is what this means. And maybe they're asked, what does this mean? This is what this means. So that they knew what the word meant. And that's the role of the preacher or the teacher. To make it simple, not to dumb it down, but to take a difficult subject, not that this is difficult this morning, and simplify it, not dumb it down, but make it readily understood. This book is made to be understood. Now, admittedly, there's some parts of it you've got to dig in, you've got to work at, and I've got to do that. That's my job, to do that, to help you on Sundays. And I spent hours doing that, to make it so that you understand it. God wants it to be understood. That's why he gave it to us, all 66 books. It's wonderful. And this is part of the ministry that I'm called to, to do that. You know, Ephesians 4 talks about the five-fold ministry, doesn't it? Well, say the thumb, that's the apostle. You know, your thumb is the most important part of your hand, isn't it? I mean, that really grips, doesn't it? It's hard without a thumb, isn't it? Apostle. The prophet, that's the pointing finger. The prophet pointed, thus saith the Lord. He points, doesn't he? The evangelist, that's the longest finger, isn't it? He reaches out further than others. He goes, reaches out. And then, of course, the third finger, that's the ring finger, that's the pastoral finger, that's the pastor. And then the little finger, that's the teacher, because that's the only one that gets inside your ear, doesn't it? (laughs) 
So the Word of God has got to be broken down until it gets inside your ears and drops into your heart that you begin to understand it. And isn't it lovely when you sit in the house of God, whether it's me or Tony or Martin or Yule or whoever preaches or a visiting speaker, and you're sitting there because it happens to me, you're sitting there and suddenly they say something and you just see it. You just get it. And maybe you'd read it a million times, never saw that before, but at that moment, you just get it because somebody made it easy for you to grasp it. They were made to understand God's word. And then there was expressive, heartfelt worship. Chapter 8, verse 6. They bowed their heads, they raised their hands, and they wept. There was heartfelt worship. Something's got to touch our hearts. Some of us are like concrete. We're immovable. Something's got to reach our hearts. Now, admittedly, some are more sensitive emotionally than others. I understand that. But at some point or other, when we meet together, whether it's through worship or it's time of praise or it's the word or whatever the case may be, or somebody giving a testimony that Claire just shared a moment ago, something's got to touch and move her hearts. If it all just appeased her head, something's got to appease her heart to her deepest innermost being. Strikes us. Moves us. And this is what the worship was doing. They began to worship and their, their hearts were just so open and, and, and just it was melting inside them. And they were moved. Heartfelt worship. Probably no better definition of worship than Archbishop William Temple. And I've read it many times, but it bears repeating. He said, to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. To feed the mind with the truth of God. To purge the imagination with the beauty of God. To open the heart to the love of God. And to devote the will to the purpose of God. In other words, worship is all that we are responding to all that he is. Chapter 8, verse 9, they were moved in their hearts. John Wesley thought he knew God, had been well trained. They went to America to reach the Indians, met a group of people called Moravians. And when he looked at them and studied them, he realized, I don't know God the way they know God. I don't really know him personally. He came back and he went to a Moravian meeting where they'd gathered in Aldersgate Street. And here's what he said. As the preacher got up to preach from the book of Romans, he was reading from Luther's preface to the book of Romans. A little introduction to the book of Romans written by Luther. And he says, as he, he preached, as he started to speak, he says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. That's a lovely statement. Strangely warmed. And he knew right there and then, at that moment, he needed Christ as his own personal Savior. But his heart was moved. Has your heart ever been moved? Strangely warmed? Touched? 
I trust so. I trust so. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verses 9 to 11 talks about the preacher. He seeks out acceptable words. Looks for the right things to say. And he says he's like the masters of assemblies. And here's what he does. He uses two things. He uses golds and nails. The gold was the pointy stick that the farmers would jab the cattle with that was going along, maybe digging up with a plow. And they would give it a jab so it would go a little bit further. It would encourage it to keep on going. That's why whenever Jesus said, you know, on the road to Damascus, whenever he came to him, and Paul says, is that you, Lord? And he said, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks, against the goads. I'm jabbing you. I'm goading you. Now, this is what the preacher does through the word. He goads you. He jabs you. He gets you to go a little bit further, a little bit higher, a little bit deeper. And he pricks your conscience and he pricks your heart to get you moving. But then he uses nails. A nail fastens you. A nail ties you down. A nail establishes you. You drive a nail into something, what do you do? To keep it together, to make it strong, to make it immovable. So you've got these two things. When somebody preaches through the word of God, it's to goad you. It's to get you to move. It's to get you to do something, to be something, to have something. But it's also a nail he uses to get you established, to get you strengthened, to get you so that you're firmly planted. So they were moved in their hearts. And then finally, towards the end, they rejoiced in God's presence. First of all, they started to weep when they heard the law. They felt guilty because they knew they had broken the law so badly. They started to weep. And Ezra said to him, don't weep. Don't weep. God knows you've repented. He knows you're sorry. He says, don't weep anymore. Start to rejoice. It's a day of gladness. This was the Feast of Tabernacles. This was the Feast of Booths. He says, go out and cut down branches. Make a little booth on top of your roof or the side of your house. A little lean-to, he would say. You know, a kind of little shed made of leaves and branches. He says, go in there for a few days. And it reminds you two things. It reminds you of what it was like in Egypt. And it reminds you that here you have no continuing city. Here, you're strangers and pilgrims. You're going to be moving on one day. So he says, be glad. At the end of the feast was a time for rejoicing and gladness and giving a presence, a wonderful feast of tabernacles, a time of great rejoicing and praise and glory unto God. You know, Jesus in John 7, that was the day he stood up and he says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. For as the scripture said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. This spoke he of the Holy Spirit. He was to come. On that last day, the great day of feast, time for rejoicing, time for living waters, time for the Holy Spirit to move. So they rejoiced in God's presence. 
And they dried their eyes. And there was gladness of heart. Yes, sometimes we come to church and we weep. Sometimes we need to weep. Sometimes we need to repent and be sorry. But for the most part, we should be coming to church and rejoicing in the goodness of God and the glory of God and blessing the Lord with heart, soul, mind, and spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this living word. We thank you, Lord, for the richness of it. We bless you, Lord, for the completion of it and how it makes us complete as believers. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to worship and praise you in your house week after week after week. Help us, Lord, never to take it for granted. Help us, Lord, not to be looking for reasons not to be here, but reasons to be here. Because we can meet with you corporately as a body, in unity and in the Spirit. So, Lord, take us from this house today, fully determined that the next opportunity as we meet in your house, that we'll be fully prepared and we'll come rejoicing in Jesus' name.